Welcome to the Raising Your Game podcast, where I bring to you the stories, insights, and ideas from those in the world of sport to help you build a stronger mind, more resilient body, and healthier life. Whether you're an up-and-coming athlete in the making or a seasoned professional, this show promises to give you something that you can use for positive change and help you in raising your game. This episode is brought to you by Sport Yogi, the app for athletes to build the connection between body and mind. Using methods such as yoga, mindfulness, mobility training, breathing exercises, and much more, the Sport Yogi app will help you at becoming a better athlete every day. To sign up now to your free account, head over to www.sportyogi.com or head over to the iOS or Android stores where you can download the Sport Yogi app completely free today. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Lewis Hatchett, and in this episode, I speak with the awesome Michael Klim, two-time Olympic gold medalist and three-time Olympian, along with multiple world championship gold medals. We talk about his journey into swimming, how he made his way all the way to the top and into the Australian swim team, one of the world's most dominating sporting teams at the time what it was like managing the build-up for the Olympics, managing expectations, how to manage yourself under pressure, breaking world records, plus things such as his experience with yoga and meditation and how all of these skills that he has acquired over his time in Olympic and international sport have helped him in his life of business that he has now. A great episode, a really great character, and I was so happy that I got to meet him and chat to him. So I give you the awesome Michael Klim. Enjoy. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we were just having a chat about lockdown, actually. We are t- talking about both of us going through d- different quarantine processes. You've gone through yours. I've gone through yeah. mine here in the UK. Um, have, you, have you been actually getting, once you got out of quarantine, how's life been and, and has things over in Australia for you? <laughs> Look, I, I must say, you know, Australia's obviously very pro- progressed in this whole COVID process when it comes to quarantine and um, managing sort of local transmissions and things like that. So... For us, it was more, for me, I'm managing living in two countries, which prior to COVID was not really an issue. But obviously now with COVID, moving back and forth is almost impossible. So I'm, I'm only back for some work things and some medical things. But, you know, my, my prime objective is going back to Bali and being with my kids. So it is, a, you know, for people that used to live in more than one country, it's, COVID's definitely affected us. And... Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm sort of trying to manage the time away from the kids as best as I can. and um, But yeah, as you know, it's not easy. You're, you're doing it at home, but uh, trying to do it in the hotel room with no windows, etc. cetera, it's, uh, it gets a bit daunting. But um, I think Australia's got some uh, good news on the on the horizon that you can basically quarantine at home, which is what you are doing now. So um, yeah, but uh, everyone's going through the same thing, so I can't complain. I didn't know that they just released that information that they were going to allow quarantine at home. That'd be so much better. That's going to be, yeah, um, be <laughs> way better. So, how how when you with uh, lockdown and coronavirus wasn't a thing, you're going back and forward for uh, 
to to Bali to Australia to Bali. Yeah. Yeah. How long? How long are you staying in each place usually? Like, oh look, normally it it really depends on work and um, obligations. But um, I have my kids week on week off, so I ha- ha- rain, hell or shine. I try and make sure I'm back for you know having the kids on the Friday after the school and up to up till I drop them off to school the following Friday. So um, yeah, and then we sort of you know my ex wife we work our schedules according to that and. Um, but yeah, it, it became quite hard to, to manage and from a health point of view as well and then being present as well. So I sort of tried to do, you know, maybe two weeks on, two weeks off rather rather than a week on, week off. It got pretty tiring. Yeah. And, and you mentioned your business as well. I'll, I'll go straight into that to be fair. Like you <laughs> you uh, started your own company uh, after your career. Yeah. What was the inspiration behind uh, starting Milk & Co? So- well, I think... I mean, the inspiration was out of necessity, really, because, you know, when you come towards the end of an athlete's career outside of the professional realm, like soccer or basketball or whatever, tennis, um, you know, I had to start planning for life after sport. And, you know, I sort of uh, had a little bit of foot in with some property and some sim schools, and but I needed to create something that was my own and I could grow over the years, which... Um, at the time, I never thought it'd be skincare. It was quite a, a bit of a, um, I know there was, a, there was definitely an opportunity that I, I saw in the Australian market that there was, you know, men weren't really using skincare products and we were very sort of nonchalant about it, to be honest. And the, even through the UK, you know, on average, the, the British guys are using three or four, uh, you know, skincare products, whereas the Aussie men will be using maybe one or two on average. So um, I thought there was definitely an opportunity for the brand to grow and um, create something from an Aussie guy that was just having that local connection was really important. So, yeah, I started with three products and and grew the brand from there. And we have about 30, 35, 40 products now that uh, span from baby, men and women. Um, And, yeah, right, we used to be... Stockton boots in the UK and all around, you know, self fridges, etc. But now we're back and just trying to reestablish ourselves in that sort of uh, um, not MS, uh, FMCG world, but more of this pharmacy world in Australia. So, um, you know, we're trying to be the go-to brand within that market. That's interesting. Is that that is a culture difference that I reckon I notice as well with with men <laughs> in Australia? It's, I don't know whether it's it must be something to do with like the cultural upbringing of men of like don't like rough it out and yeah and, but yeah. over here like this seem to be probably a few more i guess people will just blanket them as prima donnas but they'll say like well <laughs> they're actually looking after their skin and but in yeah. australia you you have to like you're getting you're getting brutalized by that sun like it's yeah, it's absolutely. intense like you have to yeah. you have to do something like you can't i definitely noticed the difference in in mine from from just spending like the last 18 months there so yeah absolutely and it's you know you know i think aussies when they go to europe they love the european tan but i think you know when we come to australia it's it's pretty harsh you know and and obviously skin cancer is a big um big deal here and we sort of try and make sure that people aren't blatantly sunbaking like we used to maybe 20 years ago but yeah. Uh, yeah so i think there is certainly a, a different perspective on on skincare so it's more pr- protective and it's more sustainable and it's trying to 
make the skin last for, for the years rather than just, you know, looking good for one or two years and then see you later. <laughs> yeah. How'd you go, how did you go through coronavirus? How was there, uh, was there adaptations you had to, to work through? Oh, definitely. It's, it was pretty tough actually for me because, you know, I, I used to, as I said, I used to travel back and forth between Australia and Bali and, you know, I had a team in Sydney, but then suddenly, you know, as of March last year, I was unable to do that, unable to front up in front of my sort of my team. So, um, yeah, and there was definitely a slowdown in numbers and our sales. So we had to, you know, find other opportunities where we could regain those sort of uh, those sales and opportunities so we moved more into digital but it's yeah it's very in a short period of time not everyone gets to pivot like you know people talk about pivoting but it's a lot of a lot of the time it takes you know months and years to re-establish yourself in different channels where we've built ourselves on being very bricks and mortar so um yeah our, our working with our retailers has been a big key and for me, the travel part has been hard, you know, being away from my family is one and then being away from my companies too. So mm. it's, um, it's uh, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting period. And I think everyone's got different cha- challenges. And for me, this displacement has been the biggest part. Yeah. What do you think you've learned the most out of it, that, that this whole sort of coronavirus experience with being a business owner, having, having your kids away as well? Mm. Yeah, look, I've definitely learned like to prioritize things better. And I, I think I used to do a lot of things for the sake of just ticking the box rather than being productive. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it made me probably in, in more of a personal level realize what I want to do long term rather than, you know, I was kind of running this 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 wheel for many years and sales and etc. But like from a longevity point of view, um, I realised that I want to you know look after the brand and look after the people that are involved in it rather than necessarily knocking a hundred doors every every month. So mm. um, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting year because I think everyone's realised what their um, objectives are. You know, yeah, like so many different. Uh challenges and it's been and coming back to England it's seeing how people have done it over here it's just walking out in the streets and seeing the shops that are now getting to open after what a, a year of being shut I just yeah. can't imagine that sort of stress even though the, the the government over here have done it in a a slightly different way to to Australia but yeah, yeah. madness I mean one of the we'll get on the swimming like one of the things that um I I didn't realize this year was the first thing I've re- found out was that swimming is the most popular sport in uh, Australia. That is the well, most it is. I mean, active it's one. Number, yeah, it's the number one Olympic sport. Um, and I think, you know, it's very much cultural. You know, we had a, an amazing sort of a team back in 50, uh, 56 and the Melbourne Olympics. And, and it definitely stayed within, you know, many, many generations. So the Murray Rose, the John Conrad's, the, you know, the Dawn Frasers and, um, so it's been it's been in part of our heritage for so long. So I think Australians almost expect some <laughs> some success in the pool, and it's sometimes we tend to most of the time we do tend to bat above our average. But um, yeah, I think that the world of sport in general has changed so much that um, you know you've got Eastern European countries, and you've got you know the Brits are doing so well this year at the trials and. 
So I think, um, yeah, definitely, even though we're the number one Olympic sport, I think it's, uh, the domination, unfortunately, is over. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of, you, you just can't get away from the footy on TV and and like cricket uh, that are just yeah, yeah. big sports in the country. But you then look at the amount of people that if you just go down to the local beach, you've got your surf life-saving, you've got people that are doing your triathlons, your Ironmans and, and just yeah. doing recreational swimming. There is a lot of people in the water like there's just yeah it's just yeah. it's just like i said it's a part of culture it's like friends of mine have got new kids and and they, they're at that age where you send them straight away to surf life saving because you yeah. kind of yeah. need to know how to swim in australia it's like yeah. a, almost a need to know thing <laughs> yeah absolutely i think we've definitely i mean i've been involved in the learn to swim business for many years and i think it's it's almost a responsibility on parents and um, even, you know, majority of the schools have it as a compulsory kind of activity. So, um, yeah, I think it's not only the beaches, but, you know, the lakes and rivers and pools. I think it's as, as, um, as parents, you kind of expect your kids to be able to swim and swim well and be safe. But unfortunately, even though we provide all these services, the drowning numbers are still rising, which is um, which is a bit concerning. But so, yeah, I think especially through last year where there was a big chunk of, you know, lessons that were missed through, through COVID and venues being shut. So, um, you know, from my standpoint, I, you know, I'd like to make sure that the kids get back into it and, and learn a very essential skill. Why would that be that the drown- drownings are going up? Well, it's uh, last year, obviously, with COVID, there was... I guess majority of the kids missed out on their, their water safety and learned to some kind of exposure. Right. And, you know, then I guess the country was reopened and the, you know, drownings do happen like accidents and it's, it's very unfortunate, but they can most of the time be prevented. So, you know, from making sure the parents are attentive, not on their phones and the right yeah. safety, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's it's continued to to rise. So, um, but yeah, I think it's definitely a, on the front front um, objective of many sort of not only just governments local locally, but throughout Australia to make sure those numbers come down. Yeah. So you ended up swimming for Australia, but you're learning to swim. I read or heard that you had learned in India, and yeah. you're bo- born in <laughs> Poland. Yeah. How did so that it's, pretty, it's pretty, um, yeah, it's not normal, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so my parents were involved in, oh, I'm, I'm Polish. I was born in Poland. My dad worked for the Polish consulate. And, and when I was about one, just just over one, he got a, got a station in, in Bombay in India. So we moved there for about four and a half, five years. And, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I learned to swim around the same time I learned to walk. So... Uh, you know, the climate was obviously very conducive for that. And mum and dad, or mainly dad, would drop us off at the pool in the morning and pick us up, you know, eight hours later when he was done. But, um, yeah, I think it's funny how history repeats itself because I'm almost going through a very similar sort of upbringing with my kids that they're involved in. A, in they go to a place called Finns in Bali and, you know, it's very colonial and um, expat kind of focused and, um, my kids have yeah been exposed to a very similar upbringing that I have. Yeah, so and you you speak Polish. I speak Polish at home. Um, I lived in Germany for a, a couple of years, so I speak a bit of German and 
um, and then went to Canada and ended up in Australia. But um, yeah, so I think that sort of transient upbringing was served me well, especially when I was competing. You know, I like the, the fact that I was able to adapt to languages and cultures and people and um, and then, yeah, going through, you know, being slightly a different kid in high school, um, I think, you know, in the long term, so me, served me well. So how old were you when you went to Australia and you, you moved over there? Yeah, I was 11, you know, and I, basically I, I signed up to a swimming club before I signed up to any school or um, so, yeah, for me, swimming was something that remained very constant through all these things have changed, like countries and friends, etc. So, um, you know, the first mum and dad knew that I not only enjoyed it, but I was good at it. So they facilitated everything for me. And um, yeah, signing up to, I signed up to Melbourne Mixon, a swimming club, which still to this day exists. The pool doesn't, but um, yeah, I, I sort of felt that I, was, I had a great affinity with people in a swimming club rather than school or etc <laughs> was there a moment a person uh, or yeah like a coach that suddenly made you realize or was it yourself that made you realize that this is something that i can take and potentially start to to do well in mm. okay it's it's an interesting question because as when you're a junior there's so many people telling you that you can be you know the next you know duncan armstrong or the next ian thor but um you know, like I think it's as you go through the ages and the divisions, you sort of get, um, you know, get exposed to what it's really like. So I, I think I was, you know, I had a great coach when I was 12, 13 that sort of let me progress in an actual way. But then when I got to 15, 16, I had some scouts sort of tapping me, tapping me on my shoulder and saying, you know, if you devote yourself 100%, which I thought I was already, um, you can really, um, you know, you can really achieve great things. So I think it's the recognition and that you have from, you know, from the sport itself that make you sort of continue. And, yeah, I moved to the AIS, Australian Institute of Sport, when I was 16, moved out of home and finished my schooling by correspondence. And, yeah, I think it's – and it's not sacrifices. It's just the choices that I made just to – you know, stick in the sport and that and there was a a conscious moment for you that you were like what well, going to the olympics was a was a goal was that always the goal or had you set smaller smaller incremental things oh, no, I, I felt that you know my first olympic I was, I was ranked number one in the world i was 18 heading to atlanta and for me um you know the opportunity was right there and unfortunately i missed that and um, I had a pretty, in my mind, it was a, a failed opportunity and I had to rework everything. And, um, and yeah, I changed a lot of things about my swimming from my technique to, to my approach to racing and training, etc. So um, I think, yeah, unfortunately, a lot of positive things happened from negative experiences. And, and it's, it is a cliche, but I'm, in my case, it was definitely you know, um, the, the truth, because I went on to, you know, within 11 months breaking world records in, in my individual events and becoming world champion. And if it wasn't for that real harsh reality of realizing that I wasn't quite good enough in 96, I'm not sure if that would have happened. Was there something specific that you sort of found that needed changing 
from that experience? It's probably my mental state, you know. I think getting up on the blocks and, you know, when the whistle goes and the pull kind of quietens, um, I was still, you know, I was almost running the race over in my head and burning a lot of nervous energy. And I think when, you know, talk to any good athletes or athletes, it doesn't matter if it's swimming or running or um, cycling, I think if they're... You know, the more relaxed, the clear-headed you can be, the, the better your outcome. And I think I used to um, overanalyze and overstress. And <laughs> um, so I learned a lot of things about myself as a, as a person and also as an athlete. So, um, yeah, and, you know, within – because I raced so much the year following the Olympics, you know, getting up on the blocks at the World Championships, you know, less than 18 months later was no big deal. And, um, you know, luckily the results came to fruition. Was there anything you used or, or a method, a technique that you used to, to help change your mental state? There was definitely um, breathing, uh, certain types of breathing exercises, um, having a really sort of concrete stru structure when it came to uh, warming up and getting myself behind the blocks. That was really important for me. So, um, and then, yeah, using tricks of people and you, you, you learn, I guess, to read people in that marching room and how you can, if you if you spend time with one person, they can actually be detrimental to your performance. And if you spend time with the other, it could be actually beneficial. So for me, it was more, you know, staying, you know, pretty mentally open and not engaged in the actual race until the last moment possible. So um, it looked like I didn't care sometimes, but um, it was more about the fact that I could switch on within five minutes and, if I did that any earlier, then I'd be, um, yeah, I wasn't very good off. So you were in a in a very strong era of Australian swimming as well. Like you were some powerhouses around yeah. your time. And you, you mentioned there not, not spending too much time with one person because you competed both individually and in a team. Yeah. What, was there certain people you would gravitate to or was there, did you just believe there was a strength in, going between everyone and, and just taking bits from everyone? Look, it really depended on the circumstance and if it was dependent on the race and um, who was in the marching room. Definitely, you know, when you're racing as a team, you try and stick together as much as you can, <laughs> except for when your teammate's not not ready. And we, we had that circumstance when Ian Thorpe wasn't quite right for the 4 by one freestyle relay and only you know, merged into the uh, marshalling area when we were being called out. So, um, yeah, I think it really depends on on the occasion and who's there with you and if you've got teammates, etc. So most of the time I would just focus on my, my kind of lead-up routine and making sure I was warming up at the last moment possible before the pool was kind of shut and then before my race. And, um, yeah, I liked... I liked having things in control, but then obviously things don't always go that way. So um, that was, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think the one thing I learned that you couldn't really predict, you know, who you're going to talk to or who you're not going to talk to, etc. So I think it was being comfortable in your own preparation was the key. Did you ever have to change, like this is, forgive my ignorance on swimming, this side of it, but obviously swimming on your own, competing for just... Mm yourself in one race um, yeah. to then going into a team event what's the change yeah. that you have to make there as an individual 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because for me, all my best splits and times are, were done in in team environments, and I I feel that I don't know. I think I used to overfocus when it came to individual performances, and I think that focus was kind of diluted a little bit amongst my teammates, and I was just focused on the actual race itself rather than outcomes and etc. And I think my ability to swim on an automatic kind of setting was was able to to come out. So um, yeah, I think that that little bit of extra focus and stress, which could potentially be a centimeter every stroke or maybe even less, um, can add up to you know being half a half a meter at the end. Yeah, that, and it's also well documented, like the amount of training that swimmers have to do like the the miles yeah. and, and i've done a bit of swim training myself and it is insane amount you have to do to get yeah. to a certain level what did what did your sort of uh lead up to a to a games look like from a training point of view what was the sort of regiment you were doing as a, as a squad? yeah I, I think back in the day we definitely overtrained that's no doubt about right. that i think the swimmers these days they're probably doing half the volume that we did they're probably much more sophisticated when it comes to dry land training and, um, you know, if you're racing for 48 seconds, it, it doesn't make sense that you're, you're training for, you know, 20 odd hours in the pool a, a week. So um, I think that, I think there's been a big transformation in terms of what is actually beneficial and um, how much time you need to spend in the pool. And so also with injury prevention and, and also, you know, like mindfulness as well, so I think, um, you know, the swimmers in the last sort of four to five years, even even longer, have fi- found a bit of a sweet spot, you know, trying to stay positive and upbeat and fresh and rather than always breaking your body down and trying to rebuild in every preparation. So it's been, um, uh, yeah, I think that's that's the way forward. Was there a lot of burnout when, when you were? Absolutely. I think the burnout occurred, you know, the people that didn't burn out, not generally did really well and they either won medals or, um, you know, succeeded. So I think it was almost survival of the fittest back when I was swimming and the ones that couldn't manage the training and couldn't manage the intensity generally didn't do well, but the ones that survived the training pool would, you know, do, do okay in the, in the racing, in the racing scenario. So, yeah, I think it probably wasn't, you know, now looking back at it, wasn't the, the smartest approach and, you know, now I feel that the programs are very bespoke to each individual in the individual athlete, I should say. And, um, you know, that way you can get the best out of everybody. Is that would, would there be something that you reckon you would have done differently now? Um, if, if you knew what you knew now, I guess. Interesting. I think, um, I got to a stage in my career when I felt like, used all the resources that were available to me. And I, I used to, I enjoyed going overseas. I used to go to Bath, to the university there and swim the UK a lot, swim in Cyprus with the Dutch guys, used to go and swim all around the world. And I think when I, you know, felt, first felt that I was going to retire, I sort of just buckled down at home and just trained on my own. Whereas I think what gave me a lot of pleasure and like opened my mind, it's kind of like a bit of creative process, is swimming with people from different nations and different squads. So if anything, I would have probably exposed myself to that a little bit more towards the end of my career. Yeah. And I 
I'd seen on your um, Instagram uh, that you had gone into things like mindfulness and yoga and you tried them out and Bali, like you can't, I don't think you can run away from it in Bali. Um, have, do you, have you implemented those things in your career or out of your career now? Definitely um, out of my career now. And I think it's something that became more prevalent for me once I finished sport and I tried to keep up this kind of lifestyle where it was not only damaging on my body, but my, my state of mind. And I wasn't really all that present with all these different aspects that I wanted to be. And um, I think I've realized that, you know, I think we're so, I think, in my mind, we're very privileged that we had so many things provided for us. You know, the stage is pretty much set and we had to, turn up in the morning, turn up in the afternoon and do our job. But I think when in everyday living, I think we all have much greater stresses from family, professional stress, personal stress, etc. So um, once I was exposed to that, I've, I tried to kind of design a lifestyle that was suited for me personally. And I think everyone can do that. And for me, I knew that I needed to be near the water. I needed to be out near the open and, um, you know, get fresh air and, you know, be present with for my kids and be a good partner as well. So um, it was only past retirement that I learned these lessons and it's taken me many years to try and create this lifestyle that is sustainable but also, um, you know, beneficial for everybody. Do you think you'd have benefited more as, a, as an athlete if you'd, because it's very easy to get caught up in just being fully immersed in your sport and just thinking about the next race, the next training session. Um, do you feel you would have benefited if you'd had that ability to be present outside of of your sport and, and almost compartmentalize your, your life a little bit better? Yeah, look, I, I don't think so because I always, you know, I made the comeback for London and, you know, at that stage, I already had the skincare brand going and I had two kids and a third one on the way. And I managed to get back to the level that I was at when I first retired. So I didn't think I proved to myself that it's definitely doable. Um, you know, I think it's def there's definitely some sacrifices that need, need to be made when you're racing in that elite level. So, um, no, I don't certainly don't have any regrets. And um, I learned a lot throughout the process but um now certainly no regrets you talked about the sacrifices you had to make what what do you feel is like the most the, the biggest sacrifice that you have to make when you're at that level i don't like i don't really like the word sacrifice because you know we get a choice you know when i was at high school and i had a choice of going to the school camp or competing against you know kids my age for the state title I would always go you know I want to compete and I want to be part of this different kind of um yeah journey so I think it's yeah sacrifices are like part of our journey whatever way we're going so there's just choices that you might not hang out with your friends as much you may not be exposed to things that the the average teenager might be but for me I always enjoyed what I was doing and I had this I don't know where the drive came from, to be honest. People ask me, but I, I was always very driven and pretty single-minded. Yeah, and you said you were, you'd go into events where you were the favourite as well. Like that's, mm -hmm. there's expectation that comes with that. There's loads of, yeah. uh, there's probably a load of people talking about how we can do. Was 
how did you manage how did you manage that expectation how did it feel for you yeah look i think initially for me i would always almost get my mental edge by overtraining and it's you know physically i was only six foot three and you know i wasn't as as gifted as you know the alexander popovs and some of the other guys mm. on the on the circuit at the time but i felt that i was always very well prepared i you know i don't think i in 13 years on the Australian swim team, I might have missed two sessions and that was, you know, either through injury or just pure fatigue. So, um, yeah, I think that that was my my edge, you know, knowing that I could, I could stand on the blocks and I prepared myself better than the next guy. Um, but, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very hard one to, you know, to find whatever that edge is, you know, within each swimmer. And you'd held multiple world records as well. Eventually, so was there? Did you did you have a goal to do that? Was that the? Did it get to a point where I'm going to go in the water and I feel confident that this is going to be a world record time? Mm. It was always that. That's the mental kind of approach that I wanted to create at the end of '96 after that disappointment in Atlanta, and um, and even though I didn't do it every single time, but. You know, by mid '97, and then towards the, the latter years of the latter days of '97, I, I was able to, you know, actually be competing for or swimming, you know, to break world records. And you know, luckily or fortunately, I was able to break the world record in the butterfly, where I was training for the 200 freestyle for years and years. So I think um, it just proves that it's more about how you approach the process rather than you know, what the outcome is because I never thought that I'd be a world record holder than butterfly. Yeah, that kind of nice to hear like that that it's the process of just allowing it to to happen and, and just yeah. see if, if that's where, where you get and yeah, rather than get yeah, getting in the water and just, just gunning it and thinking, right, I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a a world record. <laughs> what yeah. what do you what experience do you think you had that had a negative impact on you? Um, but if you if it hadn't happened, you wouldn't be where you were now. Mm. Well, I think for me, definitely that '96 experience of you know feeling like I was completely out of my depth. You know, like coming to the pool on the on the day of the tournament freestyle and not being able to find my coach, my team, my I just felt so, um, you know, like overawed by the occasion. And and that was um, the biggest learning curve for me. And it's almost – and I had to put myself in that situation more and more to overcome it. And uh, it didn't – as I said, it didn't take very long. But I, that was um, the biggest learning curve in a sense that I realised that I need to be in this situation more <laughs> mm-hmm. to deal with these kind of emotions and, you know, learn the sounds and whatever it is. So, I mean, some people walk out on pool deck for the first international meet and they're not faced by anything. But for me, you know, even, you know, coming to the warm-up pool and seeing hundreds of swimmers in each lane and, uh, you know, I, start, I started to sort of lose my composure and um, that's what I learned, that I needed to find a way and that was through structure and training really well and competing a lot. So there's, you know, there's definitely a method behind my kind of my madness, but it was, that's the thing that turned me around really quickly. Did you find a way that you could simulate that sort of 
pressure that that sort of feel and that intensity that you were feeling at some point or just train and then get to the next experience and, and try and put it into practice you know, it's very yeah. hard to simulate you know the, the experience of standing on the blocks at Olympic Games so it's almost you have to try and it's like a rehearsal in your mind trying it's if, you know even if in the corporate space if you're about to do a presentation or um you know even if it's on the, on the track it's trying to replay that that's why you see athletes having that same routine like rafael nadal with the drink bottles etc yeah. i think it's it's almost like we're trying to create ourselves like to be little robots and um but obviously we're not and some things get to us more than others but um that's that's yeah obviously the the um the objective and it's obviously been a really tough time for athletes at the moment that are going through getting into Tokyo, what are yeah. your, what do you sort of predict from a swimming point of view, maybe an Australian swimming point of view for Tokyo? Yeah. It's been really fascinating to follow actually, because, you know, like I think the swimmers overall have been exposed to the pools a lot less in the last 18 months. And, mm. you know, they've probably done a lot less in water training and, um, you know, everyone's been in the same boat and they've obviously had their own, um, you know, nations to kind of help them navigate through everything. But um, one thing that was, you know, so refreshing to see is that how fast everyone is swimming already. Like I think, you know, the U uh, the US trials haven't happened, but they've had some lead up races and, you know, the Dressels, the Ledeckis are swimming really well. Um, even, you know, in the UK, you had the national trials just recently and, you know, Adam Peaty's on fire and mm. you've got all these guys that are already swimming so well. Um, and we always, you know, question how how do these guys continue getting better, especially with this preparation of 18 months where they've had limited time in the pool. So it's I think it's a I think it's a learning curve for everybody that you know maybe we don't need to be in the pool as much and mm. we need to change our training and um, yeah. So I think those guys that are natural kind of swimmers and um, it comes yeah, easily to them will, will do really well. I actually never thought of that, that the, this games could have an impact on how athletes train. If they if they actually get the Absolutely. same amount of time, if they still start beating times, beating world records, and the games is almost not different. I never really thought of that. Never yeah. really thought that they would yeah. they would look back and go, well, we don't, coaches are getting it wrong. Oh. Uh, you know, 70Ks and, you know, like the, the likes of Adam Petey and whatever, I think they can, you know, they're focusing more on what, uh, quality rather than quantity and um you know seeing the guys be, you know thinking outside the square and in their backyard and pulling, doing chin-ups on the on, on the garage door with you know buckets of water between the legs i think that being you know innovative like that has been really refreshing to see yeah, that's that's the thing. It's kind of a bit like a Rocky montage, isn't it? Everyone's not in the <laughs> they're not in the um, like state of the art gym. So hopefully, people actually recognise that you don't need all that stuff yeah, essentially. Exactly. And 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 most of the theme of people that I've spoken to that like I remember speaking to Anna Mears and and talking about the amount of training that were she was doing and and ultimately like everything comes down to the, that mental approach, yeah, that mental side exactly. of your game. And and if you can. There's obviously been times where you've, the people had a lot of space and can dwell on so much, but if they can get that right and then mm. train, the training is sort of you get the the bits you need done, you're still going to be as good an athlete as you, you possibly could be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 
I was very fortunate to learn from so many good swimmers that um, I wouldn't say necessarily naturally talented, but they they knew what their body required to swim fast. And the likes of Gary Hall, excuse me, Gary Hall Jr. and he had many others that didn't need to swim as much as others. And mm. um, yeah, I think, and then it comes, that's, you know, like a, I think athletes intelligence where, you know, you know your body so well that you don't waste any kind of movement <laughs> really. Yeah. It's um, like I say, it's, it's going to be an, a real interesting period. Look, I don't want to keep you much longer. You've been awesome. I think the last Thank thing you. I want to, I, I want to yeah. ask is, um, is there a, is there a book, a person, a, documentary that you have found along the way that gave you whether it was motivation or changed something in you gave you inspiration um mm. look I, I must say it's and it's and i get asked this a lot but i you know i started the sport when i was 16 and now i'm 43 and i'm certainly not the same person when i was you know like i've learned a lot and and there's definitely been different things that have you know stimulated me or um, gave me some kind of um, <laughs> learning lessons. So, you know, it was, I think it, when I was first swimming, for me, it was a quote that was nice, nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And it's my coach always said, like, I mean, this is when I was 12, you know, and he said, I don't, you know, you might be a great swimmer one day, but remember this. And then, you know, when I retired, I think that, you know, there's some things as an athlete, you know, I've been able to give back to the sport and, um, you know, teach kids how to swim, etc. So there isn't a specific person or a book or anything. I think it's my life kind of journey that I've been able mm. to, even within myself, I know that um, there's some things that excite me and um, stimulate me, right? Whereas, you know, maybe 20 years ago, that was certainly not the case. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, there's. I think as we grow as a person, and those those things, is I don't have a thing. There's my Bible that I stick to, you know. Yeah. So it, it changes all the time. Yeah, it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. That's that's really really good, <laughs> and it's so true. Like people after, like having gone through my professional cricket career, and and I just always recognise, and I think when I speak to any athlete, that just say like. You're the person you are and will never chat will never chat or will change and and grow but like it's important yeah. to be a nice person throughout that whole journey because what that the sporting career hasn't has a finite end and then Absolutely. after that who yeah. you are who are you after that that's the important part yeah yeah and i think that's you know i i think a lot of people forget that you know um yeah i think our professional career will come to an end and you know, there's a there's people have great memories, and you, you want to. I think we as athletes, we put a really good impression in terms of a corporate space, and we can, you know, I think have the you know commitment to work and dedication, etc., can open a lot of doors. But I think if you believe that being an athlete is is, is the end all, then I think you're going to be found short. Yeah. Look, Michael, thank you so much for for no coming <laughs> for coming on. You've been awesome. Where's the Where's the best place for people to, to get a hold of you if they want to find you? Um, yeah. Oh, really simple. I've got, you know, a couple sort of interests at the moment. But if, if you follow me on Instagram, it's MichaelClim1. And then I've got the swim schools called uh, ClimSwim. Very easy to remember. Yeah. ClimSwim.com. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, send me a message on Instagram and I'll be in touch. <laughs> awesome. Mate, thank you so much for, for doing this. This has been, no worries, been my amazing. Pleasure. Thanks, Lewis. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Raising Your Game podcast. You can find out more at lewishatchett.com or head to Instagram at lewishatchett or even head over to YouTube. If you found this podcast useful, then please do feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Simply head to Apple Podcasts, find the show, scroll all the way to the bottom, leave your review, and it really does help. Anyway, I will see you next time.